media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be finishing out Mark chapter 10 today. It is the last miracle that Jesus did in his earthly ministry as far as a healing. And, uh, you know, we might just kind of put that on the task. Okay, that's one of many, many. But I think there's a significance, and I hope that we see that in, in the word this morning. That's one of the, the values that we get by doing expository preaching again, is that we're able to get a frame of reference of what has happened, what is happening, and it kind of points us to what will happen. It's just one of the great benefits of being able to go methodically through uh, a book like the Gospel of Mark. Uh, how many of y'all have ever played uh, the game, uh, Would You Rather? Anybody ever done that before? Maybe it's a party game, it's an icebreaker. Uh, we've done it. Basically, you're given two choices, and you, you make an evaluation, and you pick one of the choices, and then you explain to the group there, that's why it's an icebreaker, you know, why you chose that particular one. And some of them are just straightforward. You know, for example, would you rather have a vacation home on the beach or a cabin in the mountain. Okay, it's pretty straightforward. Now, how many of y'all would take the beach house? That would be your preference, okay? I'm kind of surprised that it's that few of a number. How many of you would take the cabin in the mountains? We got a bunch of cabin folk here. Okay, that's good to understand. Uh, but see, if we if we did it 50-50, then we could all visit one another. See, that's, that's the, the beauty of it there. Um, uh, Straightforward, you know, if you had free food from one of these two restaurants for the rest of your life, what would it be? Krispy Kreme, Dairy Queen. How many Krispy Kreme? Okay. But now remember, they only serve one variety of things, basically. Okay. Dairy Queen. How many Dairy Queen? Yeah, see, you can go there all day long. Okay, fantastic. Now, some of the, the would you rathers are a little bit more... Uh, complicated, you know, maybe a little bit of philosophical insight that you have to give to it. For example, would you rather have an endless supply of cash and three years to live or barely enough to make it, but you were going to live to 95? See, when you begin to think about those things, then you have to kind of go into a little bit more of, oh, I don't know, you know, do I want to live large for three years or do I want to live much more quietly and, and live a long life? And so then we begin to contemplate. It's not just, okay, you know, Krispy Kreme or Dairy Queen. There's others that call for a little bit more of an imagination. Would you rather have the ability to be invisible or to fly? How many of you would rather be, you know, have the ability, if you had one of those two things, would want the uh, ability to be invisible? Okay. How many of you would like to fly? Yeah. That's kind of, I'm part of that fly bunch. You know, that'd just be fun. Just take off and be wherever you want to. No Atlanta traffic anymore. You know, you just kind of fly and all over the place. Well, what do you rather are just, they're icebreakers. They're kind of made you think a little bit. Again, some very surface level and some a little bit deeper, some kind of philosophical. And this morning I'm going to kind of throw um, one of those that's a little bit more philosophical this morning. Uh, not right now, but uh, as we get into this, because I think it's really one of those questions as we get into the sermon and we get into the text this morning that uh, we see this story come alive. Now when I say story, these are real events. These are not made up stories. These are not just fictitious events, fables to give us moral truths. These are real lives. This is the ministry of Christ. And so these things really happen. But as we follow that storyline, we know that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. 
And we've been watching that, kind of tracking that. And we're probably down now to weeks. We don't have an exact timeline of where this fits in. Not until we get into the Passion Week do we start seeing, okay, this is Monday and this is Tuesday and this is Wednesday. Right now we're probably a couple weeks out, maybe as much as a month out. But Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This isn't very popular with his disciples. It's not one of those things that they're excited about because as we discussed last week, they realize that they are not going to be accepted in Jerusalem. This ministry of Christ and this message of Christ is not going to be well received. And so it's one of those things that they're kind of going hesitantly, and yet Jesus is just like a soldier marching. He's marching toward the cross, and he's faithful and true. He realizes this was the reason for his coming, to seek and to save the lost, and this is how God is going to accomplish that. So he's just kind of like a soldier marching on, and as they're marching on, they go through a, a town called Jericho. Have you heard of Jericho before? Yeah, we see that in the Old Testament. There was actually a new city of Jericho by the time Jesus came along, and uh, it was a place that Herod had kind of a summer place there and spent some time, or a winter place, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, would spend some time there. And so it was not like the Jericho of Old Testament, but it was uh, probably about a mile or two uh, close by, and it was a pretty prominent city. And they're coming by, and they're actually joined with a lot of other people. Not only does Jesus have his disciples, but we see this term coming up more and more, followers. Sometimes we think that as many as 72, we hear the number 120. There was a lot of people that were traveling with Jesus by this time. And they weren't the disciples, but they were, you know, kind of a part of this band of followers. Along with that, there's a lot of people on the road because it's almost time for their uh, celebrations and the Passover. And so everybody heads to Jerusalem. So it's going to be like the land of traffic. I mean, they're going to be walking, but there's going to be a lot of people along this road. And as they go up this road, there is this man by the name of Bartimaeus. Now, we're not told a whole bunch about him, but we're told his name, and we're actually told his father's name, which is kind of unusual because a lot of times when the miracles happen in the Bible, we're not given the names. But for whatever reason, Mark uh, is inspired by the Holy Spirit to give this name. And uh, Bartimaeus... We're not told his age, we're not told his past, but he's a blind beggar. We do believe that he had sight somewhere in the past, but now he has lost that sight because when he asked Jesus, can I regain my sight? And so we see this word there. Uh, and and he, he has a daily routine. Back in those days, uh, there wasn't uh, a lot of the government programs that we might have today. And so basically, if you had some kind of physical uh, need uh, of, of that or you couldn't go out and work for yourself and you had some kind of physical limitation, you had to beg. And so the typical way that they would beg in those days is they would sit along the sideways, uh, the, the roadways, and they would sit there and as people would pass by, they would just kind of clink the, their cups or something and, and ask for, for money, hoping to get just enough so that they could have a meal for that day and then get on to the next day. Very much a boring routine. I mean, it was one of those rinse, rinse and repeat kind of cycles that you just do this every single day. And we don't know how long Bartimaeus has been doing this. We don't have any idea if he's been doing it for five years, if he's been doing it for 20 years. Well, we don't know. And yet he goes out that day very much in that same routine. He's sitting there among the others that maybe have other forms of limitations in their life that don't enable them to work. And, and so they're dependent upon all these people to, to, to make it through the end of the day and to the next. 
And look what happens. Mark chapter 10, verse 46. And they, that is Jesus and his followers, his disciples, came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And then look what happens, verse 47. And when he heard it, that is Bartimaeus heard it, that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now what's really kind of cool and unique about this is that there would have been, again, one or two people traveling that way that day. No, hundreds. There would have been, I mean, the bustle of the crowd would have been similar to vacation Bible school this past week. You get those 59 kids and you get the adult workers and all that, there, there was kind of a bustle. There was a noise factor going on in the church all this past week. Well, there would have been that. And all these people, and yet somehow this blind beggar, he can't see, but he can hear. And he hears that one passing by is Jesus of Nazareth. And so what does he do? He calls out to him. But when he calls out to him, everybody says, quiet down, quiet down. In other words, we think that maybe his cry has been a little bit obnoxious. Have you ever seen somebody obnoxiously cry out before? (laughs) And you just want to say, settle down, be quiet, control yourself. I mean, they're just out of line. You know, every, here's the norm for everybody else, and they're over here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How appropriate. <laughs> and that's what happens here. They say, quiet, quiet. Barney's, come on, man. Shh, shh. But he gets even more intense. His voice gets even louder. And the desperation is cry for this Jesus gets even more. Look at verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, like I said, we're not told too much about Bartimaeus. But it's obvious from his cries that he's familiar, at least somewhat familiar with Jesus. And and because he calls him, number one, he calls out to, to him by name. But then he has this description that is really unique. Jesus, son of David. Now, this is a messianic term. This goes all the way back to 2 Samuel and the prophecy there in chapter 7 where we're told that one day somebody from the lineage of David is going to come. And so there's other places in the Old Testament where this was prophesied. And so they are expecting a king coming from the line of David. And what they were expecting is a king that was greater than David. Arguably so, David was the best king that they ever had or the most mighty, the most majestic of their kings. You can say maybe Solomon, because in one way Solomon had kind of expanded the territory and all these other things. But but David is kind of just known as this ultimate king of Israel. So the Jewish people were always in this Messiah thinking, okay, it's going to be a King David on steroids. It's going to be a greater king. And they were ready to make Jesus that king. He, he kind of checked off a lot of the boxes Except that he said, I'm not going to be that kind of king. I am the king, but I'm not going to be that kind of king. Because what kind of king were they looking for? We've said this almost repeatedly, week after week, to the point where I feel like sometimes I'm boring you with this detail. But the people wanted a political king. They wanted a king that would come and give Israel the old glory days. That the Roman government would be extracted from there, driven from there, and that they would be this nation of prominence once again. That's what they had in mind. Very much an earthly kingdom. 
And when Jesus says, my kingdom is not about this earth, it is a heavenly kingdom. Not even the disciples understood that. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw James and John and their mom going up. Hey, when the kingdom comes, can one sit on the right and one sit on the left? Folks, I don't think that they were talking about the, the heavenly kingdom. They were talking about, hey, when we take over, <laughs> when this whole re- revolution and rebellion happens, uh, can they be like first and second vice presidents there? This is their mindset. Even the disciples, even though Jesus had report, repeatedly said, my kingdom is not this way. This is the king they want. And Jesus says, I'm not that king. And so they rejected Jesus. Do you see the irony of this scene? Jesus was right there before their eyes, and yet they could not see him. And yet a blind man who has no physical sight calls him by his messianic name. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Which brings me to the would you rather question. Would you rather have eyesight, physical eyesight, or insight? I mean, we would probably be really quick to, to answer that because we know which one is the church answer. And certainly there would be all kinds of, you know, if we gave up physical eyesight, I mean, think about it. No more seeing a sunrise or a sunset. Not seeing your children or your grandchildren and their faces on Christmas morning. I, I mean, we don't have to ask Borromeus. If you have sight, it's, it's a valuable thing. And, and yet we know that this insight that he has, he sees things in this particular crowd that the others don't say. And yet he has no physical eyesight. And yet he has an insight to who Jesus is that escapes even sometimes the disciples. He's one of the few in that crowd that actually has the insight to see who Christ really is. And he sees the desperation of his need. And that's why, perhaps, why everybody says, quiet, come on, settle down. That he calls out all the more. And then something incredible happens. Jesus hears this man. Now, again, this is always incredible to me. Just like the woman who touched Jesus the one time. And he asked the disciples, who touched me? Or he says, you know, who touched me? And they said, about a thousand people. (laughs) You know, there's this throng of people. And he said, no, this was different. Here's all these, perhaps hundreds of people walking by, going to Jerusalem, going to the Passover, going to the the feasts that are about to come and and all the the ceremonial things that are happening. And Jesus hears this voice. It's like a mom. I don't know that dads always have this talent, but moms do. A thousand kids on the playground, and you hear this one voice, help, oops, or whimper. And somehow you're able to kind of drown out 99 other whimpers and cries and you hear your child. It's an amazing thing. And Jesus does that. Out of the 99, he hears this one. This compassion, this loving Savior. Here's this one that's called out in verse 90. It says, and Jesus stopped. Take that in for a second, guys. Take that in for a second. Where's he going? Jerusalem. Is there an urgency to him getting there? Yes. 
And he's been very deliberate. And yet here's a need. And what does he do? Grasp that, guys. This is your God. Oh, I'm not even going to pray about it. I'm not even going to ask others to pray about it because God's got his hands full with this broken down world. He's a God who stops. He's a God that hears the one voice in all the mumbling that's going on. He hears that voice that cries out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Is this not an incredible God? And yet this is the God that we we, we get to, to follow and that we get to, to become a part of his family. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart. <laughs> hey, he bit you. Get up, he's calling you. Verse 50, 51. And throwing off his cloak. Now you might just kind of see that as kind of, okay, he, he's going to take this cloak that he has on and he's going to, you may not see a lot of significance in that. But more than likely what they're talking about here is the, the beggar's cloak. A lot of the beggars had a cloak and they just kind of, it was kind of a, a part of their shame. It was kind of a part of their hiding. It's the kind of part of withdrawing from the rest of the world. And, and he throws off his cloak, this beggar's cloak, and he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want for me to do for you? At first it seems like a very obvious kind of question, maybe even a rude question. This blind man comes up, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, duh, maybe my eyesight, you know? But, but Jesus was never rude. There was always purpose in his questions. And I think there's great, great purpose in this question. Well, we only have to go back to verse 36. And who did he ask that same exact question to verbatim? Who, who did he ask that question to? James and John. Now, they prompted that because they gave, hey, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Kind of this really pompous attitude. And, and what do you want me to do for you? Jesus' response. And they said, one to sit on the right side, one to sit on the left side. We want to, you know, we want a place of authority in your kingdom. To me, it's not ironic at all. It's not because Mark just had a, a limited vocabulary, but he asked this man the same question. James and John, they didn't handle it too well. They asked for position and recognition. They asked to be on the left and the right. But look at Bartimaeus' response to the same question. Verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. I, I want to see. He doesn't ask for a seat of position. He doesn't ask for worldly riches. He simply asks to see. And one way, that's very humble. And please understand there's a lot more going on than what we would pick up in our own culture. This is the last healing of Jesus that we know of, that we have recorded. So I think there's something significant there. Kind of like last words. There, there's a significance. Why is this the last healing that we see? I think there's very uh, something very significant that Jesus is making a statement about what his role is or what he's come to do. And that is to save those, that those who were blind, that now they might see. See, one of the things that we don't pick up so much with this blindness part here in our culture, that they would have very much understood in their culture 2,000 years ago, is that blindness very much was equivalent with sin and sinfulness. 
In fact, all infirmities were, but especially blindness. And it was uh, there was a lot of symbolism going on here. Blindness was a metaphor for sin. Uh, in fact, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 29, 18 is just one of many, many examples. I could probably give you 10, 15, 20 examples that would be similar to this. Where in the prophecy it says, On that day the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Just one of many Old Testament prophecies about this coming Messiah and how he's going to give sight to the blind. So there's a lot of connotation, connotation here about this man's lostness, his sinfulness. Yes, he's blind, but everybody in that crowd is equivalenting that to sinfulness. The third thing that we see there is this man is a beggar. He comes with no merit whatsoever. There, there's not one thing that he can offer Jesus in any way to, to make kind of payment for Jesus' offering if Jesus was to give him his sight. He's completely dependent on the mercy and the grace of Jesus to have any hope in his blindness. Quite the opposite of James and John. I mean, I don't really want to pick on James and John. They've done more for the kingdom than I will ever do. But what was their, what's the difference here? James and John, somewhere in their mind, equivalated their performance with the right position. Hey, you know, we've been kind of, aren't we kind of like even part of the inside circle? Not only are we part of the 12, but aren't we part of the three? John even going, I'm the beloved. You love me the most. It's not that they didn't see their sin, but they see their fellowship. They, they see their performance, and somehow that gives them rank. That is, we were talking early this morning, that is such a Judeo-Christian kind of mindset, especially Judeo, the Jewish part of that mindset. That somehow when we do good things, that we kind of deserve for God to do good things. In one way, it's really the, the root of the evil of the whole prosperity gospel. That somehow, when we do this, God is almost forced to do that. Folks, that's not the gospel. It's not the biblical gospel. None of us deserve the grace of God. None of us forget, uh, deserve the mercy of God. What we deserve, let's don't pull any punches, is hell and separation from a holy God. That's not preaching hellfire and damnation. That's preaching truth. This is what we deserve. This is, this is where mankind is because of our rebellion against this holy God. So in no way, I don't care if you came to church every single week, if you volunteered not only for VVS, but you said, okay, I'm going to volunteer for VVS for the rest of my life. I'll work the nursery. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll do that. In our mind, we're going, okay, God, yeah, I know I'm not very, very special, but at least I'm more special than him or her because they're not doing these things. It's such an easy mindset to have. It's part of this human fabric of of the way that our mind works, and yet it has no biblical basis. Verse 52. You put all this together. You take all this into account. You think through the culture and the day and the age. And listen to these words in verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The Greek word therefore, well, is sozo. 
It's the word for salvation. It's the word saved. Often refers to salvation, the, what we think of being saved, becoming a Christian. In other words, this Bartimaeus began to see, but there's really something that else that happened here. Again, remember verse 50, he threw off his cloak. Never a beggar again. Verse 52, follow Jesus on his way. Where is Jesus going? To the cross. Jesus said, okay, you go. And he says, man, I'll go. I know where I'm going. I'm following you. For all the lacking of his physical eyesight, he seems to have incredible spiritual insight. His faith, as Jesus called it in verse 52, reveals two things, two truths. He identified the truth about Jesus and he identified the truth about himself, that he had no position. He he had no way that he can make this demand upon Jesus except for one of mercy and grace. There was no merit there. Again, I'm not trying to pick on James and John, but you go back just a couple verses and would you not agree? It's fine to disagree with the pastor. It's certainly fine. Would you not agree that the basis of their request comes on their performance? They demanded position because of performance. In the same way that you and I maybe would demand preference because of, I go to church, I do this, I'm a good person, I serve in this capacity. All those things are good. All those things are wonderful. And and we should. We should live out of the fruit of our salvation, guys. But please understand, none of those gain us preference with God. Position with God. All that's been made available because of the finished work of Christ. One last question to you this morning. I mean, deal with that whole eyesight, insight kind of thing. In other words, do you want a kind of a smooth, tamed life? A lot of us will say, yeah, sign me up for a tamed life. And, and yet, I want to make sure I say this the right way. Most of us can say, the times that I've known Jesus the most intimately is not on these high points, but in the darkest moments of my life when my heart was broken. And there wasn't a band-aid for it. And yet, in the midst of that darkness, there was the light and the hope of the gospel and of my Savior. Folks, there's a lot that we can learn by physical and, and, and mental and, and financial trauma in our life. I mean, none of us picked that road. But in a way, those are the times I've had the most insight to biblical truth. Does that make sense to you? That when everything's going really good, Bobby has this independent spirit that says, okay, God, go help the hurting people. And not recognizing my own lostness, my own need, my own prone to sin. That's why one of my favorite lines out of one of my favorite hymns, prone to wander, oh, I feel it prone to leave the one I love. Every time I sing that, I'm going, was that written just for me? Because that's me, God. That's me. Without your saving grace and your sustaining grace, that would be me. I would wander and I would go. 
And not only have you saved me by your grace and your mercy, but you have sustained me and you have kept me and I am now kept in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to grasp. Last question. When was the last time that you cried, that you had insight and, and to cry out to Jesus in your desperate need for him? I mean, some that could have been this morning, <laughs> last night, uh, yesterday, last week. More than likely, in that cry for Jesus, in that desperation, and in that hurt, in that darkness, in that pain, you see that is really a troublesome time. And, and, and we're not minimizing the troubles here, okay? I, I would say that's one of the most intimate moments of your entire life. When the truest moments of our lives, when we seek God for who he is, and we see our desperate need for him. When was the last time that you acknowledged that trap with who he is and who you are? There's an old song that, uh, written in 1835. The older I get, the more I like old songs. I wasn't around in 1835. Close. It had just hit the charts. <laughs> Billy Graham used it as kind of the invitation. It just became known because Billy Graham used it over and over and over and over again. The song, Just As I Am. And a lot of people maybe hear that nowadays and go, you know, I mean, that's just kind of like an old song. or You know, it's a really simple song. Really simple. And yet it is so deep. I think it's so deep in this insight of our desperate need for the work of God in our lives. But with the foundation, I come just as I am. I don't come because of performance. I come in desperate need. I think that's why it was so effective for Billy Graham all those years. I think that's why they didn't kind of, once they saw the power of God moving in that, that they didn't really go to another song because they saw that everybody, everybody, even the person who's hearing the gospel for the first time, could identify with that coming to you just as I am. I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to gain favor with you except for the mercy and the grace that you would give me through the finished work of your son. And so this morning we're going to end with this. as Both a confession as a profession of this truth as maybe that desperate start in our own lives of crying out and our desperate need for the mercy and the grace of Jesus. I love the words that this man said. Jesus, son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. I pray that that is our hearts this morning. God, continue to... You've saved me by your grace. Will you sustain me today in your grace? Will you sustain my children in your grace? Will you sustain my family in your grace? Will you sustain my marriage in your grace? Will you sustain this church in your grace? We don't have anything to offer. But we come based on your kindness, your goodness, your holiness, your grace. And that you are a God who stops and changes lives. This is our hope, and this is the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, and we love you, Father. Father, I love how 
Father, when we read these events of the life of Christ, that Father, it, this is the God that we know. This is the Jesus that you've revealed to us. And yet, Father, if I was there, I would be James and John. I would be the other disciples. I would be part of the crowd saying, shh, shh, behave yourself. So, Father, I thank you. Father, Bartimaeus is not the hero of the story. Father, you are. And yet we see a, a faith, Father, a simple faith that comes in desperate need to a grace-giving, merciful God. Father, for those this morning that recognize their deep, deep need, Father, I, I pray that they would find this amazing grace and the sustaining grace that you've made possible through your Son. For it's his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.